0: If these training wheels that are simply, you know, there so that you don't fall over, but for a skilled user of, well in this case, bicycle, are no longer useful and in fact restrictive to one's full use of that instrument, of that bicycle, can the same not be said of the
1: stricture against the passive voice? Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Hey everybody, today's episode is for my language nerds who are out there. Today, I sat down with John Christensen, and we discussed his article, A Defense of Passive Voice. Now, this is interesting because I've always been told that you shouldn't use the passive voice. So he discussed what the passive voice is, um, when he thinks that you should be able to use it, and answered objections to not using the passive voice. If you like what we're doing here on The Classical Etc., then you can like and subscribe on YouTube, and you can check out other videos that we're making. Now, here's our conversation. John, I don't know if I've ever told you my background educationally and why I think it feeds into a lot of the conversations we have. For people who don't know, Memorial Press is probably one of the only workplaces in America, maybe, Mm -hmm. where spontaneous arguments about the fine detail of language use, classical history, mythology, sports, history, literally any topic someone has a passionate opinion on. And the breadth of those disagreements are pretty hilarious Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and frequent. And you and I often get into them. And the uh, discussion today is an article you wrote for The Classical Teacher on the Classical Etc. podcast. One of the things that we do is read these articles and then discuss with the author the various points of them that have been left on the cutting room floor. As I understand it, this article, the passive voice from uh, the spring 2021 edition, which some people um, may not have read yet, definitely check it out if you haven't, um, was twice as long as it currently is at one point in its editorial history.
0: Yeah, well that's just a factor of the passive voice being a longer construction. You just have to to be a little (laughs) more precise
1: in your language, right? So this is a point where ultimately I think you you and I actually agree at its heart But we disagree with some of the ways um, that you have approached it, and we're on various – on opposite sides of the aisle. And I thought it would be fun to kind of articulate our disagreements, articulate our agreements, and talk about the article that you wrote called The Defense of the Passive Voice. A Defense of the
0: Passive Voice. (laughs) It's not that we're going to be discussing articles here. Uh, Well, we'll be discussing an article. We won't be discussing grammatical articles (laughs) uh, uh, like the and a um great clarification yeah we're already off to a suitably pedantic
1: start um (laughs) so first before we get into the article could you just define what is the passive voice give me an example of a passive voice construction in english and an active voice construction so that people kind of have a sense of what we're arguing about here of course yeah and this is something that people do all the
0: time right every speaker uses the passive voice at some point when i'm Teaching my students Latin, right? Oftentimes I find them before we cover what the active voice is, what the passive voice is, they just begin translating either way, willy nilly, right? And so some kind of uh, stricture, some kind of definition of the two is important. Active means that the subject of a sentence is performing the verb, right? So I find the gold, right? I'm the one doing the finding, I'm the one performing the action. So the subject, I, is also the agent, the one performing this action. Whereas passively, if the gold is found by me, I'm still the one doing the finding, but I'm not the subject anymore. The gold is a subject. The gold is found. So now the subject is receiving the verb passively. It's experiencing the verb, but it's not the agent. It's not the doer of the verb. That doer, me, in that sentence, has ceased to be the subject.
1: So active, the subject is doing the action of the verb. Passive, the subject is receiving the action of the firm. Right. And oftentimes the problem with passive voice, if if there is one, which mm-hmm. is up for debate, um, is that there's an indefinite or a lacking subject. And sometimes it's more specific to add a subject. Would you say that's the basic critique of the of the passive voice? Oh well, uh
0: letting you do the definition here is a dangerous game here, Shane. Uh I would say that uh the Two different effects are afforded, passively, by, um, by structuring a sentence actively or passively. The agent, the performer of a verb, is obvious or apparent in an active construction, right? There's no ambiguity as to who's doing it if it's active. And so one therefore could argue that a sentence without uh, an active verb, without an active construction, therefore leaves the agent of the verb uh, open. Especially if it's simply unstated. However, the question is: Is that necessarily a bad thing? Again, there are numerous examples in my article of a sentence where mentioning the agent in a passive construction is not necessary, and therefore to restructure it in the active, out of some desire to make it an active construction, ends up being rather odd, rather bizarre.
1: So let's let's go back to the beginning um, before we get too deep. You know, I think we've set laid the ground for the definitions of the active and the passive voice. And your target in this article is a particular teaching dictum, teaching expression that's pretty universal. In every freshman, seventh grade, writing class, the teacher is going to say at some point, do not use the passive voice. Yes. Um, I was in a graduate school uh, where I wrote a paper and I was sitting across from my professor I was employed at that time as an editor elsewhere, and I used a passive voice. And my professor marked it and said, "Hey, you should know. Don't use the passive voice." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Thank you for that new information. Yeah. I've never heard this before." <laughs> um, and the uh, that that is very that is common and universal. Do you agree with that? It is
0: commonly stated. It is almost universally stated, but not commonly or universally justified. It's this weird presence. In our in our uh in our education in English and yet the actual predication of that rule why do we not use the passive voice is very rarely justified to the student um or for that matter to the you know uh, postgraduate editor uh as the case may be so my chief kind of consternation and the the point I'm trying to make is that while we can make certain qu- quantitative uh statements about well the passive voice and the active voice accomplish different ends, and therefore, depending on the kind of writing you're doing, the active voice is more likely to be useful or more likely to be effective in accomplishing your goal than the passive is in any given sentence. That, again, is a quantitative argument, not a qualitative argument. To say, therefore, that because the passive voice is less effective, that it is ineffective or perhaps even subversive to your goals, right, is an unnecessary leap. Now, I understand it from an educa- or an elementary perspective of when a student perhaps doesn't know what the difference between active and passive is, and we need to separate what the two are, right? Then by all means, separate and, you know, demonstrate a preference that active by far is the more natural construction in English. But to suggest, therefore, that the passive A, not be used, and B, continue not to be used once a student passes into a more mature understanding of how to use the language, is an artificial restriction that ends up causing more problems than it solves.
1: So the beginning of your article, you wrote this, and I think that this is a governing idea. So we were just talking a second ago, you were explaining that you have been perturbed by this somewhat universal uh, prohibition against the passive voice. And you set out to justify it for a very particular reason. You said at the beginning of your article, the rules we learn that govern the use of language, therefore, are those that make the best use of language, or rather, that best accomplish the aim of one's speech. Far better it is that students see these pillars of their study not as strange Herculean mandates, but as foundations for masterful expression. So you use that idea, what you were just expressing a moment ago, that... The prohibition against passive voice is a a training wheel, mm-hmm. if you will, to argue that it is absolutely not inherently evil to use the passive voice. Am I understanding you right?
0: That's right. Yeah. Again, my admittedly pompous use of... Uh of a uh, Herculean language there refers to the uh, the p- pillars of Heracles, these mythological kind of foundation stones at the edge of the sea uh, of the Mediterranean in Greek mythology. The idea being that they were set there as a boundary that no one should ever cross and that horrible things happen if you ever dare cross it. We've crossed them. Uh, it, the idea was there was this inscription at the bottom, ne plus ultra, go no further, right? Uh, and that's, that's
1: in, in the stories of, of Heracles. Yeah,
0: yeah. But Eventually, they did, right? The Portuguese and the Spanish sailed across the ocean blue and eventually found out that doing so was quite a good idea. Even nowadays the uh, the uh, kind of motto on the uh, Spanish uh, kind of royal coat of arms is plus ultra just without the knot because they went and did it, right? They went and broke those rules, but accomplished this goal, this better, this better goal. So why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing it up because again, at a certain point, at a certain degree of development, right, sure, making a firm statement to one's students and saying, okay, don't do this yeah. without going and justifying it is fine, right? But it's so far beyond at this point just an un, a rule with unstated purpose that it's a rule where even the teachers don't have a stated purpose for it, right? I There are some, I'm sure there are those among you who have strong reasons for believing why the passive voice should not be used, uh, like I did just there. Um however, even so, there are there are exceptions. There are situations where saying that the passive ought not to be used simply comes a comes up against an immovable object, a, a goal in a speech, right? A form of expression that really would not work without it.
1: And before we get to those examples, you actually turned away from saying um in your in your article you, you stopped with just merely addressing the question, you actually turned to Latin, and I thought in an interesting way, Mm -hmm. to defend why there are positive reasons that we might incorporate the passive voice into our our speech in English. Could you flesh out that Latin illustration that you used? Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of
0: all, Latin uses the passive quite a lot. Uh, Roman authors, orators, poets were quite fond of the thing. Uh, to such a degree that while we can still say that they use the active more often than they use the passive, uh, it was a lot closer to a 50/50 than it was in in English speech. And the reason for that is because of, well, because of the shape of the language, right Each language is different, not just in terms of its vocab, but in terms of how it constructs ideas. And because of what excellencies a language has that allows it to express or construct ideas, with greater or lesser excellence compared to others, right? And so it can be said that the best use of a language is that which employs those capacities that that language has, which is very highfalutin way of describing, for example, that English has an enormous vocabulary, right? Just vastly larger vocabulary than Latin does or German does, right? Uh, And so best use of English is one that's capable of marshalling that massive resource to great effect, right? So what does Latin have? Latin has, an well, it's an inflected language, and because meaning is implicit to the word as opposed to something in, in, informed by word order, where the words are in the sentence, you can end up moving bits and pieces in that sentence around a whole lot, right, without essentially changing the meaning of the sentence at all, which allows Romans, especially ancient Romans, right, speakers of Latin at a time where most mass communication was literally as loud as you could shout, right? Uh, Where oratory, public discourse was the kind of the highest pinnacle of the use of their language, that the degree to which one can speak well, not just communicate well, but speak well, uh, was the mark of excellence in the language. And therefore, being able to kind of shift the shape of your language in order to kind of create an almost poetic or fluid rising and dropping of emphases uh, makes speech better or worse, right? And so by having passive voice, for example, by allowing your subject and your agent to be parted and to create an emphasis on, for example, the subject without creating an emphasis on the agent, which is something that is afforded by the passive voice, gives greater breadth to the degree to which you can play with the emphases in your language. And that is used to great effect
1: by so, Roman orators. I wanted to ask you then, and you brought it up, so I wanted to pause on it for a moment. There is this major difference between English and Latin that you talked about. And yeah. that is, Latin is what we would call an inflected language. Mm-hmm. That is, we change the spelling of words in Latin. To reflect their grammatical use in the sentence. So, in other words, you would spell the subject of the sentence differently than you would spell that same word if it's acting as the object. And that's how you indicate right. its function. Whereas in English, Shane argues with John, we know that I'm the one arguing with you because my name appeared first. Yeah. Whereas in Latin, you could say, John argues with Shane, and it would be, it would be spelled differently. Our names would be spelled differently to indicate who was the subject and who is the object. Right. So what you're saying in this paragraph then is that there's actually something added to our ability to communicate by you, by expressing ideas in various ways. It seems like what you're talking about in this uh, paragraph is variety of expression, something we talk about in our classical composition curriculum. And so- do you think that passive voice actually is maybe a way that someone could add rhetorical skill to their their writing and speaking if they were using it intentionally?
0: Yeah, 100%. Again, it's semantically speaking in terms of what a sentence actually means. The active Shane argues with John and the passive John is argued with by Shane. Again, semantically identical, but the emphases are quite different. Semantically, you mean the the meaning of the words. Yeah, the physical reality that we're describing with that sentence, yeah. right? It's the same situation. And the sentence, both sentences do a decent job of describing that reality. But one emphasizes you. One emphasizes me. And there might be legions of different circumstantial reasons why we might want to focus on you. And even greater legions of reasons why you'd want to focus on me.
1: Yeah, it it reminds me of, of this thing that's missing in some of the modern writing curricula, and that is the ancients focused so much on the gymnastic exercise of expanding various ways of thinking about communication. They were intentionally trying to increase their ability to use new words and increase their ability to use new expressions. And in some ways, the modern approach to writing is to figure out the most efficient most in economically precise way to communicate singular ideas. And so our approach to writing um, is in some way different. And that's that's where our writing curriculum at More Press comes from, is trying to recover some of that uh, elastic nature of language and the, the work it takes to expand modes of expression.
0: Yeah. So we, we had a conversation with one of our other colleagues recently about the kind of rules of language being descriptive or proscriptive. Right. Is language are our rules of language there to describe uh, or to just kind of give some kind of imperfect treatment of a language that already exists. Right. And just give us a guiding, you know, a guiding map to how we navigate this messy jungle that is the English language or Latin language or whatever. Or is it proscriptive as in these rules, these guideposts are actually defining the literal limits of the language, right? So that if you go any further than that point, then it ceases to be English or at least ceases to be valid or good English. Um, I would say the the classical tradition would probably more likely describe it as a descriptive uh, grammar or a descriptive language, because as you suggest, well, part of what you suggest is that the of the mark of the classical speaker the mark of the classical writer is kind of delving further right is finding more not necessarily more complex ways of expressing an idea but finding more specific or more varied ways in expressing a truth or using words to express a truth in a different way again the reality of you arguing with me at a table right Can be expressed with a lot of different versions of a sentence, right? And the more capable we are of doing that, the greater number of ways we can articulate the idea of you being at a table and me being at a table and us having ideas and those ideas being different, right? Doesn't just show how cool our language use is, but it expands our understanding of the
1: truth, right? Yeah, yeah. So without going too deeply into the descriptive versus prescriptive argument, which you know would just bring us to war with each other, Mm -hmm. um, and we'll avoid that on. Uh, for this, for the sake like of this, I, w- I did want to go into the exact actual anecdotes that you use that you attempt to justify the use of the passive voice because you're saying these are examples where the passive voice is the most apt way to express these English ideas. So you gave us five examples. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to go through every single one of them, but I thought the fifth one was particularly good. You said that if there are multiple people acting on a single object, the active construction would include multiple clauses that would get confusing and added together. Uh, Whereas the passive voice allows you to streamline what you're expressing. So your example is this. In the active, you would say, Jennifer dumped me, my boss fired me, a burglar robbed me, and my mom kidnapped me. Didn't see that coming, did you? In the passive voice, it would just be, I was dumped, fired, robbed, and kidnapped. Right. Much more economic. Yeah. Much easier to state. You have a couple of other examples here. Walk through some of the other examples and explain why they are more aptly expressed in the yeah. passive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you one from the
0: article and give you one from the cutting room floor uh, because there was one that I really did want to include, but for space's sake, didn't make it. Uh, so one, for example, would be uh, if the subject or rather the agent is unknown right? Uh, And so I want to, example, describe something as having been made in the 13th century, right? Let's say the sword was crafted in the 13th century. There, that's a passive construction because the sword isn't making, the sword is being made or was made rather a long time ago. If if that's all I want to say, just the provenance of the sword, and then that's a perfectly grammatically valid idea. If I wanted to say that actively, though, then I need to include an agent, But if because the agent therefore would be the subject, the one doing the crafting, the one doing the making of the sword. But if I have no idea who that is, then I I'm kind of in a bind, right? I have to include some indefinite pronoun or some indefinite subject like someone forged the sword in the 1300s, but which one is more natural? Which one is more concise in expressing an idea? The sword was forged a long time ago or someone forged the sword a long time ago. It brings in an unnecessary degree of vagueness to include a subject whose role is purely there to satisfy the arbitrary demand for an active agent.
1: I'm glad you brought that example up because I think you and I run into this pretty frequently um, in our job at Memorial Press, whether at teaching classical studies or talking about classical history. Frequently one of the biggest obstacles to telling a story about that is very foreign and about ancient or foreign things is that there's so many names and places that people don't have any reference for, have no context for. And one way that you can tell a story better is simplifying what are the objects of attention in the story that I'm right. trying to express. And this is a way of doing that economically. You leave out the the name of the vague person who made the sword because you're not trying to talk about the sword. Yeah. I'm trying to talk about the sword. It was made.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's a that's an important point, you know, the the typical kind of concern about the use of the passive voice is that it adds an unnecessary degree of complexity or an unnecessary degree of um, of uh, detail, right? But the same absolutely can be said of the active, right? That there are certain ideas that ought not to include an agent if the agent is unknown or uh, redundant or unnecessary, right? And therefore, one becomes unnecessarily descriptive or ends up introducing, you know, semantic ideas that are not present in the actual reality you're trying to express. So again, the active runs into the same problems, just in different circumstances.
1: What was your other example?
0: So my second example was uh, if the subject is excessively long in an active construction. Because again, the worry about a passive construction is you're suspending the actual important part too long. But what if the important part is actually the object, right? So for example, here's an active construction for you, or no, a passive construction. Let's start with that. A cure for cancer was discovered by Dr. Doug O'Keefe, the director of the National Oncology Commission. Let's reverse that now and make it an active construction. Dr. Doug O'Keefe director of the National Oncology Commission, discovered a cure for cancer, right? Like that second part- You're burying the, the lead. Yeah, that, that's an important, that's a, the important part of the sentence, right? Who cares about Doug? Sorry, man. It's the, the cure for cancer is the part we care about, right? right? That's the part that has an obvious degree of emphasis that ought to be placed on it. And by suspending that until the end, artificially with an act of construction, one is disserving the person you're trying to communicate with. Whereas putting it in the front in English necessitates a passive construction.
1: So I think your argument is sufficiently understood. Um, so let me take the gloves off okay, I, because we, we disagree. Um, oh boy! And let me use one example to illustrate why. One of the other examples you, you talked about was if the subject is obvious, mm-hmm. then an active construction will include the agent in a redundant fashion. So the the agent in this particular sentence, the subject would be prosecutors will prosecute shoplifters. Yeah. Whereas what you actually see posted in grocery stores is shoplifters will be prosecuted. My issue with that example is that I don't want to write like a sign at Walmart. And I'm not trying to teach my students to write that way. And the passive voice is indefinite and vague for maybe an economic or practical reason, but not for an effective reason. Writing is always going to be less cliche if the subject and the person doing the action is in the clear sight of the person reading.
0: Would you say, therefore, that uh, a a simple expression being simple by means of it being posted in public, therefore makes it unsuitable for, for
1: vernacular speech? Not necessarily, but I would say that the human tendency or the writing tendency that I've observed most in students or those who are not advanced in writing, is to drift towards ambiguity and vagaries. And forcing someone to turn sentences from the passive to the active forces them to think about what they're actually trying to express in the details of the sentence. If they just want to talk about the sword and they say, it was made, then they are leaving out a particular detail that they may not actually know who the person who made the sword was and that may be an important detail. So by encouraging and exhorting students and writers to think about the active voice, it forces them to complete full thoughts. They have to know who the subject and the object is. The passive voice gives writers an excuse for only knowing half of what they're talking about.
0: It gives them an excuse for only knowing half of what they're talking about.
1: Now, while uh,
0: it's hard to speak in the you know on on behalf of a very small child, right? For whom again, some kind of more proscriptive demands of language use ought to be given, at least on a temporary basis. Uh, in just the same token that one can say one wants to enforce them, speaking about the full breadth of what they ought to be talking about, could one not say that on the other side? that could be an excessive degree of talking about the thing they want to talk about. Again, when we use language, we use language to describe reality, right? To describe something about the world. And yet because we cannot incorporate the entire entire specific universe in our language, all of our language is imperfect. All of our language is to some degree imprecise in describing reality, right? And so we limit our language use to talk about the parts of reality that are germane to our interests, right? So, if, for example, I concede, and for the record, I do concede that a third grader who, for example, uses the active and the passive indiscriminately and in a way that does noticeable harm to their understandability or to the perhaps the emphatic force of their language, then by all means, you know, have them prefer, have them lean on the side, and if necessary, temporarily entirely on the side of the active voice. But in just the same way that misuse of the passive voice can be seen of, as a sign uh, seen as a sign of english immaturity or of language immaturity the continued insistence on only using the active voice can be seen as its own degree of linguistic immaturity right if these training wheels that are simply you know there so that you don't fall over but for a skilled user of well in this case a bicycle are no longer useful and in fact restrictive to one's full use of that instrument of that bicycle can the same not be said of the stricture against the passive voice? Does using no passive voice as a mature, educated adult, or for that matter, a well-spoken high schooler, or a high schooler trying to write in a mature way, uh, does that continue to be useful? I would say, depending on the kind of realities they're trying to describe, which again, at this point, can be a sufficient, sufficiently large breadth of realities uh, that could include the passive, then restricting the passive at that point would cease to be helpful and would in fact be counter
1: uh, counterintuitive. Okay, and that is a good answer to the first objection. And ultimately, like I said at the beginning, we we do agree, I think, at heart that clarity and specificity in language and arbitrary rules are not helpful <laughs> for yeah. anyone. But I do think this speaks to a broader reality that you and I were discussing earlier, and that is you and I do tend to approach language and writing, the task of writing, in two diametrically opposed ways that I think are complementary, but interesting to think about. My goal in writing, the one that I was taught, was to try and express the ideas that I have with the clearest idiom that is possible. And whether I do that successfully or not, let the reader decide, but that's what my goal is. And I've tried to learn rules of punctuation and um, Precise definitions and usage and grammar, and things like don't use the passive voice, because I see that as a way to speak into our particular idiom as clearly as possible. You seem to be approaching from a slightly different a- angle, which I'll let you articulate
0: all right. Sure. Well, m- certainly, when I was g- growing up learning the English language, it was not it was it was already fairly formal, but it was very much self-guided. And that ended up having some some odd drawbacks. Uh, I was the kind of kid who enjoyed reading the dictionary, right? Like just looking up words for the sake of expanding his vocabulary, because I enjoyed the kind of how the the rules based nature of kind of word by word by word by word, right? And it coming to meaning through that. But that ended up causing problems because, of course, a word isn't just a meaning, right? Uh, the word you know, to like and to glean might technically have the same lexical definition, right? But I can think of a very specific usage in my, when I was 11, 12, something like that, of trying to use the word glean as if that's a normal word to use in, you know, vernacular day-to-day English and, being you know, being pointed at, right? That was a very strange moment. And it was one of numerous occasions where it became apparent that simple knowledge of the base rules of a language, or even the base rules of a vocabulary word, right, are not enough. Language is a lot more than just this kind of smorgasbord of clear meanings, right? Language is clarity, language is implication, language is culture. You can accomplish an enormous number of goals beyond purely painting a picture for the person you're talking to with the words and with the grammar you choose to express express that truth. So, when I look at language, when I look at the use of language, I think of it as less taking these rules and building a construction according to them, right, and more taking a block of marble, right, with all of its, you know, odd imperfections and contours and, you know, streaks of color running through it, and then carving and chipping away all the bits and pieces you don't need, and then coming to the truth that way, right, coming up with a version of language or a version of a sentence that proceeds organically out of the idea in your head, right, and doesn't strip anything away that takes away from the flavor, the quality, or the uh, the character of that idea. And as a result, sometimes you are going to put emphases in a way that might not be, for example, the grammatically traditional focus, right, but because of the context, because of the idea you're expressing or the emphasis or the intention behind your expression you might choose to express it in what is technically orthodox, if grammatically correct way and thereby accomplish a more effective even if not necessarily grammatically obvious manner
1: yeah and i think that's that illustration is interesting specifically that your writing process as putting a piece of marble out there and then and then cutting away down to the, the sculpture that you actually want to present because i think in the opposite way for me when i approach the task of writing i am putting something out there that's very particularly and uniquely me it's my thoughts and it's my my thinking and then i approach the sentence to think about how am i going to make this more what looks like something someone else could can understand and i'm actually making it more all of my revision is the process of making things more clear and more grammatically acceptable and traditional as you as you put it just a moment ago and oftentimes that's taking passive constructions that were intuitive to me or instinctive and making them active so that I'm more clearly expressing the idea that that someone else can understand perhaps this is a useful metaphor for the
0: appropriate degree to which or the p- appropriate direction in which we ought to treat language at different developmental levels right when a child doesn't know, English, because they're small, and learning the language, right? They don't have a block of marble yet, right? They don't have the tools yet, right? And so for them, their language should be additive. It should be constructive, right? You learn the rules and bits and pieces that you can make into language and construct ideas from that. But later on, once they're no longer, you know, small children, once they have a lot of stuff in their head, and not just ideas, but ideas about those ideas, right? And ideas about not just what you want to express, but how you want to express it then your language use should be subtractive. It should be formative, right? By paring down an existing idea into a version that you into a version that you wish to express, right? So the former would be more of what you're doing, right? By again, essentially constructing meaning out of an existing rule set. Whereas the latter, dare I say the more mature, <laughs> uh, v- a variation of constructing language or use of language would be one that, again, uses language as again a pairing instrument to turn a reality into an expressible idea even if that reality is not immediately conducive to your traditional t- rule set right you can still use the shape of the thing use the shape of the idea to inform how that language is going to end up end up looking
1: so the implication of that is obviously that I'm a child but let me give the defense that I'm not a child and that is I do think there is something to be said for the generosity of a writer who maybe perhaps doesn't have the ability to reach for a variety of expression that someone else does, but perhaps on the other hand is also intentionally cutting away the creative challenge of reading difficult writing on purpose to make his writing as accessible as possible and a closer uh, trust and loyalty to the rules of traditional grammar is actually an act of generosity in one sense, because it's trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator that is those the, the type of English that is most common to the most amount of people. Um, and so maybe it's not as elegant or powerful as the former approach, but there is something I think to it and worth sticking to.
0: And I I would agree with that entirely, uh, unreservedly, in fact. I mean, again, as we said, language has a different function, right? We we, uh, try to achieve different ends with our language depending on usage, depending on circumstance, right? And if you had to say, on average, right, moment by moment, are you more likely to be trying to present someone with a version of an idea that is as accessible as possible versus a version that is... You know, kind of challenging to some degree, or demonstrates some some, as you said, eccentricity or personality uh, in the language uh, at the expense of clarity. Right? Then, yeah, probably the former is the more uh, the more kind of compelling moment by moment demand of English. Right? I still kind of object to the idea that the passive, by its very nature, is a more complex construction right? Or as a more grammatically appropriate rule, insofar as, again, there are so many occasions where its use is not only appropriate, but the most clear choice, right? The most concise choice, uh, where otherwise any other choice would be unnecessarily complex for the sake of a rule, right? Um, In any case, in principle, right? The idea that language clarity of language for the sake of clarity is a virtue. By all means, it's a virtue.
1: It's simply not the only virtue in language. So in summary, John, I think at the end of the day, we agree. And that is there are uses for the passive voice. And that if you are unapologetically sticking to the never use the passive voice mantra without thinking about the pragmatic value of that argument or the reasons why you should abandon it sometimes, then you're probably not thinking about language correctly. You, you agree with that?
0: I think that's a very uh, a
1: very good way of
0: of setting the guideposts as clearly as possible, right? Absolutely. I even say in my article that the you know the passive voice and the active voice are both useful, but not of equal utility. And I would certainly not suggest that the passive voice is of greater utility than the active, right? If anything, the contrary, by all means, certainly in terms of typical use, but You are correct, right? We can simultaneously tell our students don't use the passive voice up until such a point where they're used enough to the difference between the active and the passive voice to begin perhaps in a more advanced way, use it elsewhere, right? And that extends as much to when you're just talking. Active voice is still probably better overall, but you're probably going to want to use it eventually.
1: Well, John, I think you've given an able defense to a wrong view of defense from passive voice. <laughs> the war
0: rages on. I do not expect this to be the final word uh, uh, emphasized as the final word in this will be given the construction of this argument uh, uh, in
1: this debate. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. If you like the show and would like to stay connected, consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We greatly appreciate any support for our show and ask that if you liked the episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.